What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode. On today's show, my guest is Nucci, or should I say co-host since he's also a podcaster in the space. Um, speaking of, you should absolutely check out his podcast called The Nucci Show, where he interviews NFT founders, helps you discover new projects, talks about Web3, and much more. I got to know this amazing individual through NFT communities, Discord, Twitter. He's a super fun guy to chat with. We've done many Twitter spaces together. Uh, he's knowledgeable, he's curious, he's kind, and I'm more than excited to share our episode here today with you. This was a really laid back convo. We had a couple of drinks, we just kicked it. We dived into our introduction to NFTs, our background, how to audit a community, our travel stories, and much more. I don't want to take more time for the intro because I just want to dive right into the convo. So without further ado, please enjoy my episode with Nucci. Nucci, welcome to the show. Yeah, Martin, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. I don't know if I'm interviewing you or you're interviewing me or it's like vice versa, but uh, we're kind of going to just going to go with, with the flow and riff from here. But it's mostly like we're, we just have questions for each other and we're going to have a, a cool conversation. Yeah, that's that sounds good. I think it's just just two people having a you told me we were going to have a drink. Are you uh, are you drinking something? Because I have a drink in front of me. I have I have a little bit of um, uh, Johnny Walker. Nothing, nothing like crazy, but Johnny always hits a spot. How about you? Awesome. So I have a uh, Irish coffee, and I'm a little nervous because I didn't wash the mug I'm drinking out of, and the the bubbles are like sparkling in it, almost oh, as no. though almost like there's <laughs> dish soap. But I'm just gonna go ahead and like hope that the amount of whiskey <laughs> and Bailey's I put in, which were which were both generous pours will we'll like kill whatever, uh, whatever chemicals are in there. So, uh, That's a good side of alcohol. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we actually got to, uh, kick it a couple of times on Twitter spaces. And obviously you're also a proof member, I think from day one, right? Like we were in the chats and, um, and we got to interact back and forth and I was always a very, I'm, I'm going to put it up front. I, I, I believe like you you really have a good way of interviewing people. Uh, and, and you're, you're providing a lot of useful info in the space. So I just want to thank you for that before we, we even go into the conversation. Oh, that's, that's really kind. Thank you. And, um, dude, you have a great voice as well. I'm, I'm like learning from people like you who've been doing this for many years. I'm still really new to it, but I appreciate the compliments and I'm, I'm, uh, just trying to, to I'm kind of like learning publicly here as I, uh, podcast. So I'm happy people are enjoying it. Well, that's the cool part of this whole space, right? Like, again, we're going to maybe dive right into it, but the whole space is about NFTs and, and we, and it is a new space where we get to learn so much from each other. And because it's so early, like the, the thing that you knew four weeks ago might be kind of like obsolete right now. Well, so, so that, that's, yeah, what's so, that's what's so funny is we had some notes on some ideas to talk about for our original show. We were, <laughs> supposed to, we were supposed to record a few weeks ago, and I think we I ended up having some conflicts. And then I was looking at those notes, and I was like, we can't talk about any of this shit. This is all like uh, from a different like era. Um, yeah. So yeah, the space moves so fast. There's always something to be discussing and digging into. So how did you um, just take us back? Like, How did you actually get into this space? Yeah, so... I'll take you back to like my early crypto days and I don't, I'd love to know the answer for you as well. So we'll have to dig into your story in a minute, but um, it started in 2013, 2012. I kept hearing about Bitcoin on like Reddit. And I remember hearing Stephen Colbert do a monologue that like Bitcoin had hit $40. And I remember thinking like, Oh, I missed it. Like it's over. And then I remember, 
<laughs> like a little, a few years later, maybe, or a year later, he talked about, it was like 2013, I think at this point, he was like, it hit a thousand maybe. And I was like, oh, you really missed it. You had two chances and you missed it. And then I ended up buying a Bitcoin on my birthday in 2013. And uh, I lost half of that original Bitcoin. Uh, I sent it to like okay. the wrong address. And at the time it was like 400 bucks and it was a bummer. And then Bitcoin crashed in like the winter of 2015 to like $200. And I sort of like didn't pay much attention to it. And I like definitely didn't understand it or like what a blockchain was or what proof of work was or any like the basic fundamental building blocks of cryptocurrencies. And then fast forward to 2016, I had two like independent touches that kind of pulled me in. And it was Andreas Antonopoulos on Joe Rogan's podcast. Andreas is like a brilliant Bitcoin thought leader. He's been in the space yeah. forever. He has some of the best content out there. Hugely appreciative to Andreas because I learned, I got like my whole Bitcoin diploma from him, I would say, just listening to his stuff. And then I listened to, I think his name's Don Tapscott on a TED Talk back then. And he was talking about blockchain, the power of blockchain. And at the time, I thought blockchain could literally do anything. And now I think I'm like a little more disillusioned. And I, I know like blockchains are essentially just like slow, write-only databases, right? That are like expensive to use, but have a couple interesting properties that make them like really fascinating for digital ownership. So mm -hmm. anyways, 2016, those two things happen. And for the past couple of years, I've been thinking like, I should just buy one of every coin or like a, a bunch of every coin I can find because who knows what the next Bitcoin is. In 2016, I found Ethereum at like $10 and I bought a bunch of that and I bought a bunch of Litecoin and I bought a bunch of Ripple and Dogecoin and like 30 other coins. And uh, through 2017 and 2018, I like traded them and and I was just playing with them and tinkering and I watched the whole ICO mania come out. And uh, I remember I, I, my wife and I uh, quit our jobs back then in San Francisco and we went and traveled the world. And I remember backpacking. We were going to the Everest, uh, Mount Everest base camp. And nice. it's like, a, it, yeah, it was amazing. It was like, a, uh, it's like a two week trek. I actually had to get helicoptered off. Uh, Pretty intense. Like, yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. Well, that's the thing is like, uh, I, I ended up having uh, the beginning of like cerebral edema. Like I was having really bad altitude sickness and I was like starting to lose motor functions and I had to get helicoptered oh, off. No. But before I got helicoptered off that trek, uh, I've also like have pretty bad asthma. So it probably wasn't a great idea for me to try to go to like that altitude. But Long, long story short, on the way up that trek, I remember I was in like one of the tea houses and I saw someone checking their phone and refreshing their crypto portfolio. And I had like never <laughs> seen that up until this point. Like crypto just was not something normal people had. And like everyone in the tea house knew about it. And I was just like, I'd been traveling in Asia and I hadn't really had my like ear to the ground on what was going on with crypto. I knew the prices were ripping, but I just didn't realize like how many people had got into it. And I remember being like, oh, okay. So like, this is what adoption looks like. And then we obviously had the winner. Uh, for a couple of years. And then I got back into it. I, I've always like always really into it. I'm always like, I'm definitely like all of my friends, Bitcoin friend or now NFT friend. Yeah. And then 2020, I lo long story on how I got to NFTs. So I hope I'm not putting everyone to sleep, but 2020 no, rolls no, around. I mean, it's super interesting. Okay. Yeah. Can I, can I just ask you like one question before we go to like NFTs? So based on all these coins that you actually invested in, which one perform the best, you know, like, cause you said ripple, you said like Ethereum and, and did you, cause depending on the timing of when you bought it, right? Like I'm sure ripple at some point was at, uh, like a dime on, you know? Yeah. So yeah, ripple and Doge, if, hilariously enough, ripple, which is a coin that I have like zero real conviction in and Dogecoin, <laughs> which similar, similarly, I don't have a ton of conviction, definitely perform the best. Um, and the funny story in ripple is like, I got it at like under a penny and I, I bought like so like a hundred dollars worth not a not a ton but under a penny it was quite a bit and then uh 
Yeah. I was in a hostel in Thailand and it was going at like, it was at like two or three bucks. And I was like, I've got to sell some of this. And I like, I was trying to sell half and I accidentally like the Wi-Fi was bad and I kept hitting sell, sell, sell. And like, it wasn't going through. And I remember like slamming my computer shut. And then like the next morning I got, I went to a cafe and I opened it and I had accidentally sold all of my ripple, but the price had crashed like 80% that night. So I, and I like got out. So I did really, really well in ripple. I remember like seeing, like submitting that to my account and seeing the cost basis and the sale and just like kind of chuckling because it's just such an absurd thing. And then they hit this year. And unfortunately on that one, I had had like millions of Dogecoin and I sold like 99% of them on that Ripple day and they hadn't done anything mm-hmm. yet. So I still made a, a great chunk of money on, on Dogecoin, but like it would have been really life-changing if I just stuck with it. So is that wild? So, so like, do you, do you think there's actually potential for new coins to actually replicate that era? I would say like it was very wild west back then. Like you kind of just, nobody really knew about it. And even investing in, let's say Bitcoin in 2013, it was like, where am I even putting my money in? Right. Like, or what, what is it that I'm really investing in? Do you think like the market is, is ripe and mature enough now that there's nothing that can really have that kind of opportunity anymore or that kind of return? That's a great question. I don't know. I, I think that we, we can definitely still see that type of thing. I think we just did with like Solana and mm-hmm. I'm sure there's others, but Solana comes to mind because it just had a crazy, crazy run up not so long ago. And I think people are still innovating and creating coins and there's still a demand for it. So I think there's still opportunities like that. I, I do think the market is very different now. And I see some of this in the NFT space. The way money sloshes around in the NFTs is very similar to how the money moved around in crypto like six years ago or even five years ago. And that is like, you could really only get in and out of the banking system with Bitcoin back then. And uh, if you wanted to go into Ethereum or Litecoin or anything else, you had to first buy Bitcoin and then you'd have to take it to an exchange. And that's where you'd go exchange it for Ethereum or Litecoin or Dogecoin or any of these things. So basically what you would see is you'd see one day everything would be green that wasn't Bitcoin. Like literally Bitcoin would be red, it'd be down 10%. Everything else would be green. And then the next day, it would be the opposite because people would be taking their profits and moving it into Bitcoin, and which means moving to the banking system. So everything would be red and Bitcoin would be green. I think Bitcoin, I, I haven't checked recently, but I know it was at a trillion dollar market cap. Like those are bigger numbers now. But in the NFT space, like we can see Moonbirds come out, right? And we literally yeah. watch the floor on every other project drop as money gets sucked away for people to, to enter the raffle. Or we can see the other side, exact same thing. And literally as soon as these things drop, we see the floors on all those other projects rise. So I see that type of money moving around and it just reminds me a lot of like five to six years ago. But in terms of like a new Dogecoin, I guess we also saw like Shiba do it. (laughs) So so like, you know, I don't know, like in terms of meme coins, like meme coins are just like a totally different like community driven phenomena that we're, I think we're still trying to figure out. Like Tesla has a bit of it. Dogecoin has it. Um, But I remember like, like there was, there was one thing that you mentioned in the proof chat that I thought was very interesting is you said like, Memes are such a powerful way to grow your brand and vehicle. It's a vehicle to get the story out there or to get, let's say, like Moonbirds, like the amount of memes you can make out of Moonbirds so that it kind of reaches out into broader culture in a sense. Like, like I think that's very interesting to explore as a marketing means. Yeah, I think memes are really important and more, more, more important today than they've ever been. And I think people are starting to understand kind of like, I don't know if meme ability is a word. But like Elon, for example, understands the power of a meme. If you look through his Twitter, like 80% of its memes, um, I think 
memes are probably something that's going to end up being taught in business schools if they're not already being taught. Mm-hmm. As are like NFTs, as will Board API Club. Like, there's a lot of things happening today that it's being so fast it's hard to keep up with. But you're in marketing, right? Like, what, what's yeah. your position? On? What, how do you how do you feel about memes? Like, I think like something that captures your attention is either shocking, super funny, perhaps very informational. But all of that has to be relatable. And I think the meme aspect of things makes everything kind of relatable because it's like you're making fun of something that is. I guess like it's it's kind of like emojis, but taken to another form, like let's say Pepe in any way, like gifts or memes can can become something that vehicles a message better and, and gets people to talk about a specific subject without going too deep and nerdy about it. If that makes sense, like sometimes you don't want to reply with a, a paragraph long sentence or like a lol or whatnot, but you want to take something very specific and contextual to a project or to a platform. And I think that's where memes really kind of shine. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think just to add on to that, like two other thoughts thoughts are, I think there needs to be a truth behind the meme and truth behind yeah. the, 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 you know, the GIF. And, and that's why it's they're like so relatable and why they have so much impact. The other thing I'm thinking is like, if you were to go back 100 years, 200 years, 300 years and have a conversation with someone, the language people use evolves over time in, in like a major way. I think we've all, we've all read a book from like, a, you know, an old like Sherlock Holmes book and you're reading words that people just don't use anymore. And even like the way people wrote or communicated like in writing was much more poetic, even a hundred or 200 years ago. And I think people using emojis and people using gifts, it's like the next evolution of communication. And I mm. found it really interesting not so long ago uh, it was three years ago, I started working for uh, a big tech company and we were using Slack and the amount of communication that was being done in emojis and gifts was hilarious to me because this was like a serious tech company. But I hadn't seen that evolution because I was working in a more conservative company before that. And I was like, okay, so this is how companies of the future are working. And even now, I just I just started with a new client and I'm texting with you know a senior executive and we're using emojis to have that conversation. Yeah. And and uh, thousand percent. Just, yeah, it's just part of the evolution of communication. So, but isn't that for, so? Do do you think you've gotten used to it? Do you still find like a little bit of like resistance there, or I don't? I think I'm totally used to it. I actually okay. like I I opt for gifts and emojis now because I can display so much more than I could in a sentence. Yeah, exactly. I I guess like it just removes all the friction of like having to orchestrate the perfect sentence for it to make sense. You can kind of like save time and maybe not make such a developed sentence. But then at the end of it, you, you add like a smiling emoji or like a party face emoji and all of it makes sense. The, the person doesn't interpret it in a bad way. Because sometimes like yeah. if you don't, if you don't, you don't watch carefully what you write and you don't put an emoji, it can, it can seem like such a, it can be min- misinterpreted, essentially. That's a great point too, is that I think over the top, over time, we realized that texting didn't have context and it lacked a human emotion. And now when I want to respond to someone, and speaking of removing friction, if you want to find a gift these days, you can search for, you know, yes, please, or no, thank you. Or, and, and it'll give yeah. you, you know, 50 ones of um, Steve Carell in the office doing that face. And it communicates so much more than I could with words. And it like, it gives the person a chuckle. So exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny how we're evolving Well, it's in the same way, like right now we're doing a podcast, we're doing audio. Um, I think even that like conveys so much more than if we just had like a a Twitter back and forth. 
and again, like may, maybe some ideas are better expressed in writing, but like emotion wise, like voice or video and visuals are just so much more powerful. A hundred percent. And and I also think that's why I've been personally so attracted to Twitter spaces lately. And I've been putting podcasting a little on the back burner. I haven't been churning out episodes so quickly because I'm sitting in Twitter spaces and it has all the power of podcasts with this additional layer that anyone can join the room at any time. And mm -hmm. it's a much more dynamic space to have conversations. And you, you just never know kind of where the conversations will go, how big the audience will get. Um, they're a little more ephemeral because they sort yeah. of die off unless you, you're saving them, but most people aren't. But I've had some really, I mean, I've had conversations with, I got pulled into a room recently and there were like two world champion soccer players. This guy, MDV, his name is Mariano DeVao. I think I might not be saying his name right, but he's like some big Italian fashion designer who has uh, an NFT project coming out. And like people were coming in the room and like some Burberry designer came in. It was like, I work for Burberry oh, London. Awesome. I'm a huge fan. I have no, like, I don't know what you guys are talking about. I just want to come say hi to Mariano. And I was, I'm over there like, who am I talking to right now? Like, <laughs> like it's crazy. It, it removes all these barriers and boundaries. So it's a lot of fun. It's very, very spontaneous. And, and the, I guess it kind of echoes the, the philosophy or should I say like the, the nature of the space, right? Like when we're talking about NFTs, bringing it back to NFTs, like it, everything happens so quickly and it's, you know, one moment is this, the other moment is that, and everybody gets to participate in whatever the current climate of whatever happened, happened, right? Like, let's say uh, Yuga Labs just dropped their other side land. Well, all of a sudden we have so many spaces just about that. And then it's contextual to the moment. Yeah, and it, it moves. It's like if the normal news cycle takes a couple of days to move, the NFT news cycle takes a couple of hours. Like it's uh, it's over <laughs> so fast. If you want to, like we can we can dive into the other side of it. Or is that, did you participate in that at all? Um, actually, I mean, I've been really looking from the sidelines because this is not an ecosystem I understand a lot. I'm not a board able holder or mutant ape uh, holder, so I, I don't have my my toes like dipped into like the Yuga Lab uh, ecosystem. Obviously, for me, I found it super interesting because it was a way for people to dive in in some way or have some sort of stake in the Yuga ecosystem. But again. I don't want to make moves too quickly. And there's a lot of like predictions and, and um, how, how could I say speculations about where this is going. But again, nobody really knows about it. But I do think that it is a smart, um, a smart thing to not bend against Yuga. Other than that, I really love the artwork itself. Like it reminds me a lot of uh, these lands from Starcraft. If you've ever played the, uh, like, and whenever I see those, I'm like, I kind of want to get one just because I think it's so nice. I, I particularly like the one that's like, I think it's like Bioloom. It's like the one yeah. with the waterfall and all that. I'd be chilling there if I had an ape. <laughs> <laughs> you said something interesting there. You said you don't like to move too quick, right? And mm -hmm. I, I've recently implemented a set of rules for myself around buying, like when I'm, when I'm having FOMO to buy, I will... I have to go through this checklist. I don't always do it, but I try to, uh, I have it, I have it like on a sticky up on my screen. I try Can to you share it. Yeah. I try to, it's a growing list. And I, like I said, I don't always follow it, but I try to go to the discord. I go to their Twitter and I look, I don't just look at their accounts, but I look at their posts. And if I see mm -hmm. like giveaway stuff, I usually kind of steer clear just cause like that. I think that that sort of mindset is gone the way of the dinosaurs at this point. It worked for a while, but now people kind of see through it. When I get to their open sea, I check the volume. Okay. Because I think like when you're in a state of FOMO, 
you're in like a bit of an aroused state and you're not always thinking clearly. And I think that's why a lot of hack scams are so effective in this space. And checking the volume will show you if you're on the right site, right? Mm -hmm. Usually they won't have 10,000 ETH in volume if you're on a fake OpenSea page. And then I'll also search the project on Twitter, like actually search for it and read what people are saying and just do like a quick, just like personal sentiment check. So those are five I do, but I'm trying to grow that list. But I am curious. So you said you don't like to dive in too quick, but I know, I think you minted proof, or at least you're like a very early proof member. Like what about proof made you want to be a part of that right out of the gate? That's a good question. I, I think like, well, with proof, if I take it back even further, I, the first uh, NFT I minted was a V friend. And again, like at, at the, at the core of it, it's all people that I've listened to for a long time. So it was not a move that was like, I'm going to dive head into this and, and just like um, not understand anything. At the, at the time, I didn't understand anything about it, but I knew that the founder was someone I could trust and whatever they did, I thought like, this is someone that has a proven track record. They have a great reputation. If I was to dip in my toes into any type of NFT project, let's start with this. And it turned out not so bad, but <laughs> again, like it, it is in the sense that I don't try to move fast, like to catch up with everything that's happening. I'm very strategic with the information I kind of take in. Sure. Are you a Gary V fan? Is that someone you were aware of well before this? Actually, yeah, he was. So, I, I mean, I'm, I'm from the marketing scene. Uh, he's actually the reason why I started a marketing agency about like five, five years ago now. And um, I actually listened to a lot of his, his advice on marketing. And the, at the time when he started to speak a lot about NFTs, I just found like, okay, there's something here. Because this guy, like he doesn't just switch subjects like this. Like he, he's pretty, I'm sure he's onto something. So I kind of dove deeper and deeper and I'm like, okay, yeah, the technology is really amazing here. And the idea of like adding utility to these NFTs is something that of course, like in the future, that's going to happen to every type of business. It's going to tokenize everything. Interesting. So I, my only exposure to Gary V, I, I of course knew about him and a personal trainer at the gym I went to, we were chatting one day and we were talking about podcasts. He said, check out Gary V. And I listened to one episode and I don't know whether the episode was a dud or if Gary V is just, obviously he's, he's compared himself to like a, a, a professional wrestling promoter, like personality wise. And I'm not sure if like <laughs> it was his personality didn't vibe with me or if there wasn't an overlap content wise in my interests. But at the time, and this must've been four years ago or so, I listened to maybe 10 minutes of the episode and, <laughs> and it's funny because you're the second person to tell me that they work in marketing. The other person is the founder of Ducks, who I've become okay. a pretty good friend with now. He owns a, I believe it's a design agency or marketing firm or something in that neck of the woods. Interesting. And we were talking about Gary Vee and I mentioned how he wasn't my exact taste in like what I look for, but like, I understand that. And he was, he loves him. He's like, I've learned so much from him. <laughs> and it's so interesting that you're- but he, he is, he, th that's the thing. I think like Gary just has like a, a sort of, he has that polarizing character. It's either you really love him or he can rub a lot of people the wrong way. He does have a, a very strong way of communicating. And a lot of people don't like that, you know? I listened to him on Kevin Rose's show recently and I loved it. I thought it was a really, and maybe it's because there was Kevin there and they were talking about NFTs and things I love. And mm -hmm. I could literally listen to anyone talk about those. That's what I do all day is listen and speak about NFTs. But um, I will say this about Gary. I have a ton of respect for him, for his ability to onboard a massive community of people into the NFT space. And the reason yeah. I say that is, I mean, it's obvious that he did that, but like, 
I am a crypto native, right? I love Bitcoin. I love it all crypto. I've known about NFTs since 2017. I, I met the founder of Curio Cards at his birthday party in San Francisco. That's insane. <laughs> yeah. And I remember talking to my friend. His, he goes by the name of Mad Bitcoins, the guy who created Curio Cards. And oh, funny, like side note on that. X Copy was denied. X Copy was one of the artists in the running to be a Curio Card person. And if you're listening, you don't know what Curio Cards are. They were one of the original NFT projects from 2017. And they had like a call for artists. And then some of the founders, I think, were on who to choose. And X Copy got denied, which, oh my which God. is really funny retrospectively. But so I've, I mean, and I remember CryptoPunks coming out and I watched as all of this unfolded and I, it didn't pull me, like I couldn't understand it. I felt like I've said it before. There was a party that like, I didn't know where the front door was to the party. And I was watching a lot of fun happen inside and I couldn't get in. But I also just didn't, I remember looking at Board Apes at like two ETH, five ETH, 10 ETH. And I was like, why would anyone pay this for that? Now that I'm in, I get it. But mm. I do think as like someone who is a crypto native, I think it takes a special touch to convert someone. And it's interesting to me, the amount of people that came in, when I talk to NFT people, the three things I hear are, I hear uh, NBA Top Shot, a ton of people came in through there. Gary Vee, a ton of people came in through there. And then, of course, in my like small worldview, I see a lot of people from Proof who came in through Tim Ferriss and Kevin Rose. Yeah. And it's just very interesting to me, the streams that bring people into this space. And, and I, I, I guess I'll ask you this question. is like, do you, how do you talk to your friends about this? Do you try to onboard them? Like I've almost given up <laughs> trying to onboard people at this point because it's really, when I started my podcast, I wanted it to be for friends and families so they could listen, understand. And at this point they've all called me and I like, think, dude, I, I think like, I think like to, to, that's a really good question to, to me. Like it's not about, um, I continuously talk about it to my friends obviously not to the point of like going deep into the detail of each project, but I'm just like, Hey guys, you can, you should kind of like pay attention to this. And obviously I'm not going to do this at like any kind of dinner party. I'm, I'm more doing it with like really close friends because I also care about them. And again, this is not final financial advice, but the way that I would speak to my friends is that it's just like, there's an opportunity here. And if you, if you're willing to get educated, you can actually like be in the early days of something that is the, I would say like the early days of web three in the same way that it happened in the web web two uh, scene back then. And in maybe like the early two thousands or like 1999, 1998. So this is like that time. And when I see someone, let's say like Kevin Rose bringing back to proof, uh, kind of like hundred percent focus and all in into this, it just makes me so much more bullish about the whole space. And I kind of introduce it that way in the sense that, you know, I, I never talk about the financial rewards, but I'm just saying like, Hey, this is such an exciting space to be in. Like imagine owning, um, for example, like I know you interviewed, um, uh, Drew, the, the founder of uh, Rickhouse Dow, and I've been working with Drew to, you know, take care of the marketing and also like discord management and all that stuff and allow lists and, um, with premint and, and one of the things that I found just interesting that I talked to my friends about, uh, about Rickhouse Dow was the fact that like, Hey, Actually, you can buy something like a token like this for about a thousand bucks and you own part of a, like you can share the profits of a liquor company. Like how cool is that? It's, it's a bit like owning a stock, but the stock, like you, you never get to actually see the community here. You have a token gated discord. You can talk to everyone. You have access to the founders right away. You can propose ideas to a found to the founders because it's set up as a DAO. Like all this stuff to me is very interesting. And that's kind of how I on, try to onboard people. I've been successful with one person <laughs> out of like, out of like the, the, the 40 something or 50 people I've talked about it. 
that was my you you mentioned a couple things I want to tap into there. The first is Drew and Rick Astow, which is an amazing project. I also had him on my show. Mm-hmm. I'm like happy to be friends with the guy now. He's he's just an incredible person and I'm really excited for what he's building there. So happy you mentioned him. And if anyone's listening, yeah. like go check out Rick Astow. It's a really, really cool project. We both have episodes with him. So uh but at the end of the show, you can decide who you liked more, Martin or myself, and go listen to the show, <laughs> one of our shows. <laughs> um, the second thing you mentioned was access to the founders. And I agree, that's just this incredible new paradigm where it's like a paradigm shift where, you know, Kevin and Proof, they listen to what Proof people recommend. And that's like a crazy thing to me is that like in a traditional company, you'd never listen to recommendations. And I was just talking on a space yesterday with Ryan Carson about this because he somebody was asking about, do you think the community should be able to make the decisions at the end of the day? And he was saying, I think they should be able to recommend things and have access to the founder and the founder's ability to execute on the best of those ideas will be reflective in the project success. But I don't think the community should be making decisions because it's just way too cumbersome to get consensus from a big community of holders. Certain decisions, yep. maybe, but not everyday, uh, you know, uh, decisions and then well because be, and it's it's a good uh, good point that you brought up there because I was um I was on that space too and and one of the things that was being asked is how do you build a good community in in the first place like even before like people get to have decision making roles because they're part of the DAO and whatnot like how do you actually build a community and that ties back into the founders actually being there and being responsive to whatever the community throws at them because. If you're not you yourself, like part of the community, you will, you will not grow a community. Like the, the, this space is, is such that if you wholeheartedly give yourself to the space and you want to build some, something meaningful, people are there to support you in doing that. Sometimes people like can, can want to, um, to, to get shortcuts to do that. Like, Hey, how do I build a community quickly? It's the same game all over and over again. It's like people saying, how do I get a hundred thousand followers on Instagram? Or how do I grow my YouTube channel to a million subscribers? Like overnight, like it takes a lot of time. And I think we're, we're at a unique moment in space with NFTs where it, it, the, the idea of like a thousand true fans of Kevin Kelly has never been more true. Like you don't need a, you, you, you don't need like a, an audience of uh, 2 million people. You can have an audience of 10,000 people that will buy into whatever PFP or DAO token that you release, and they're going to be part of the journey with you. Yeah, I, I think we're moving into, it's like a, the next shift in the journey of creator economies. And I think we're, we're watching it happen in slow motion. And the tools in its current situation of Twitter and Discord and OpenSea are like the three main tools. Are, they kind of feel a little like duct taped together at the moment, but they work. Um, but I think this kind of rolls back to what we were saying about, you said you've converted two friends, I think, or one or two, one, one, two, two is very ambitious. (laughs) Okay. I've gotten two so far and, uh, one was lucky. They won the moonbird raffle and I recommended they do it. Even though I recommended it to like 10 people, only one person got it and only like four people entered it. And everyone Uh is confused. Everyone's pretty confused at what happened with that. Like how how much they're worth now. But, um, the reason I'm rolling it back to these people is like, I think there's a really like telling people about NFTs is a bit like telling people about a mushroom trip. Like it just doesn't work <laughs> until you go and experience it. Right. And the reason I say that is because like the moment you mint, I remember minting my first NFT. I'm sure you do too. It's a what pretty, what like, was the NFT? If I can ask. My, my first NFT was a wanderer. 
Um, okay. Yeah, I don't know if you know that collection. No, they're no, I don't. Pretty, they're like these little gifts uh, in a spaceship, and there's music, and they're they're pretty sweet. And they've since okay. launched a few other things. They haven't done spectacular, but they're still fun, and a lot of people know about them. And I I think they're it's something I'll never sell. But I'm I'm gonna uh, note it down. I'm gonna check it out. Wanderer. Okay, yeah, they're it's a fun little collection. They they recently they recently released Wander Knots, which are the captains of the spaceships. Anyway, so. I remember that experience. Like I remember connecting my wallet, picking the thing, the picking the wanderer, hitting buy, approving the transaction. It's showing up in my wallet, me looking at my phone, seeing it in my wallet, playing the music oh, yeah. over and over. Then I remember going into the Discord, going on Twitter, and like I think that experience and experiencing like the ownership of a digital asset, experiencing the community, experiencing the roadmap, like they're all parts of this experience that if you haven't participated and you haven't minted, you don't really know. And I, I think it also, it lends itself to a lot of like, if you're, whether it's a wander, like a PFP collection, or if it's an art block, for example, you mint, you, you have this amazing experience where you are generating the art in real time. And then you do it once and you're like, well, what did I just do? And you learn about the art and the code being stored on chain. You learn about on chain versus off chain. Then you learn about the history of art blocks and Snowfro and Squiggles and Fidenzas and Ringers. And you you go down this big rabbit hole there. And like I just think it's really important to actually mint. And the people who I've converted, there's only been two. Uh one, I got to mint a rubber duck. And hilariously, like two <laughs> days later, he was texting me and he's like, dude, I've been hanging out in the rubber duck Discord all day. And he's like, <laughs> I, he goes, I think some of these people are are like my real friends now. And it was just funny because I feel like a lot of the people I've met in this space the past four months have become real friends. Like they're people I talk, I, I take my son who's uh, 11 weeks old. I push him in the stroller and sometimes uh -huh. I'll get a Guinness and walk to the pier by my house and I'll, I'll fire up a call with Drew or I'll fire up a call with uh phrase or like all these people from proof. And we'll just talk about like the, the NFT drama of the day. And it's crazy. Cause I have like more in common with these strangers on the internet than I do like my friends of 10 years, because all of my en attention and energy is front and center on the NFT space. And of course, yeah, I need, I need an outlet for that energy. That's why we're talking right now. Just so I exactly. I mean, cause, cause it's so, uh, it's, it's a type of thing. You cannot just go outside at a, at a cocktail party and talk about it, like open, like widely to anyone because nobody, first of all, nobody really understands. And the, the short amount of people that might get a glimpse into what it is, they're like, oh, cool. I'll check it out later or something, but they've never really had the experiences you've had. Like, let's say if the person you're talking to never admitted an NFT, they, for them, it's a bit like, um, like you were saying, it's a bit like describing a mushroom trip because I, I still remember like the, fir the first time, like I minted my NFT, I was so like, cause at that time it was substantial money, right? Like, you know, even with the V friend, it was, I think it was like 0.5 ETH, you know, th that was, that was about 2000 bucks or something. And, and, um, and like, it's something you're just putting out into the, you know, into the black hole of like, uh, I don't know, like the web three space. And you're like, well, what is coming back to me? Like, is this thing going to appear in my wallet or something? And, <laughs> and then it's, it's a bit of this unknown, but also like the, the excitement of well, what's going to happen next. I remember the first time I actually moved my proof pass to the ledger. I was like, holy shit, like make, <laughs> I hope I didn't mess anything up. And this is, this just didn't go like, uh, like get lost into the, and into the blockchain or something. Then eventually I saw it into the ledger. And I was like, oh, 
good, good thing. Good thing that this happened. The good thing is that more and more information is out there and people are actually making educative videos about it. And the technology makes it so that it can be more user friendly. Yeah, I think we need a lot of abstraction still to make it user friendly enough for, uh, you know, the average, the average yeah. non-native. Like Discord. I'm, Discord is not user friendly at all. <laughs> Discord's not not great. And um, I, I'm like convinced Discord is the weapon of choice because of the bots. It allows you to token gate access and assign roles and all those things. I'm not sure. Maybe Slack can do that too, but I, I, everyone is on Discord. And even though we've kind of fragmented out our all these channels and we all have way too many Discord servers and whatnot, I think it's still like, it's it's easy to, it's still one place to go to have all the conversations. And it's not like I'm in Telegram, Discord, Slack. That would be a nightmare. But yeah, to that, yeah. what you're saying, I think the layers of abstraction need to go away. It shouldn't be horrifying to send an asset. And it is horrifying. And I have the same experience. <laughs> and I've, I have made no less than 500 on-chain transactions and probably closer to a thousand. And I still like, if I'm sending something to her for my ledger, like I'll take a shower, I'll clean the house. I'll like dust the ledger <laughs> off. I'll make sure my computer... And my phone is fully charged. I'll lock all the doors to my house. Like it's a whole experience. And then I'm still every single time horrified. Um, even though it always works, it's still yeah. a scary situation. But it's one of those things like, I think one of the most amazing things about this technology to me, and it's one of the things I always mention to people because it I watch like their minds get blown, is that you can make a wallet offline. You can make a wallet with a coin, right? If you flip a coin 256 times, write down the zeros and ones, that is a that is a valid wallet address. Um, or no, that's a, a valid wallet private key, I think. And you can yeah. then generate a, a, a public key from that. And you can do all of that offline on something that's never touched the internet. And then you can send assets to that address that's never been on the internet. And I tell people that I'm like, you can send Bitcoin from the internet to a device that's never touched the internet. Um, that's and crazy. Moreover, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's one of those thoughts. I, I can't remember who, I think like Steve Jobs has something where he says like, great technology is indistinguishable from magic. And mm -hmm. I, I'm butchering the quote and I'm, it probably wasn't even Steve Jobs, but I'm sure a bunch of listeners are rolling their eyes and know exactly the quote I'm trying to say, but it is magic. Like that is as close to magic as you can get. And the idea that you could destroy the device and memorize the private key and that all these assets live in your mind. And if you travel a border or you die, the assets all disappear and you can travel to China with, you know, a billion dollars of assets in your head is like next level magic. But that's, one of the the major shifts that's occurred here. Well, I mean, to me, one of the the things that was shocking is actually the the person that I was lucky enough to onboard into NFTs. He actually does a lot of accounting, so he has he he's in the restaurant business and everything too. But he uh, he actually takes care of the accounting side of restaurants and uh, well, his few restaurants that he owns. It, it's really revolutionizing the way that people can send and transfer or like interact with their money because the traditional banking system he told me like in in montreal canada i did not know this but you cannot put cash in your bank you cannot uh, put physical cash in your bank safe isn't that crazy <laughs> that's ridiculous that, like a safe deposit that's box, that, exactly that you cannot put cash in like that's literally what a bank is for and you cannot put physical cash in your safe deposit box well, and I think it's really funny, Martin, is I was just having a long conversation. I too, my roommate from college visited with his wife this past weekend, and we were sitting by a pool and we were talking about all this stuff. And his wife asked me, she was trying to kind of wrap her head around it. And she was like, 
But how long, if you wanted to take this ape and sell it, how long would it take? To <laughs> and I was like, honestly, like assuming I could sell the ape right away, which I, I guess you could if you went at floor or whatever, it would take about three days if I wanted to go as fast as I could. And most, and I said like 72, uh, 71 out of those 72 hours is the banking system taking time. Like yeah. if it was just in crypto or I was staying in a US dollar stable coin, it would be instant. But it's the mm-hmm. banking system that's the slowest part. And I think anyone that I've onboarded, I, sp- I spent a lot of energy onboarding friends into Bitcoin and Ethereum. I don't have as much energy to onboard them into NFTs just because I feel like I've spent the last six years of my life doing it and I'm just like exhausted by it. And uh, I, I know the outcomes of it. And it's just like people will get here when they get here. If they have questions, I'll answer them. But I'm not going to like spend my life trying to onboard people anymore. <laughs> we say the same thing. And it's like, once they've interacted with USDC or a dollar stable coin, they they just sort of like they're blown away at how archaic the banking system is. And oh, yeah. even like that crazy rule you just mentioned is one of them. Another one is like banks are zero percent fractionally. I think they have a zero percent obligation to fractionally re- back your your money now, right? <laughs> in, mm-hmm. in the US at least. And it's like, okay, so they legitimately do not have my money. Whereas like if I own a Bitcoin, I own that Bitcoin. It's in my wallet. And even though it's like magic unicorn money, I have more faith in the fact that I own that Bitcoin and I can be my own bank than I am in putting a million dollars in a bank and believing that they have it. Because I know they don't have it. They just are basically writing me an IOU and using the money as they see fit. So, Yeah. And I mean, at the end of the day, it's just about the trust that people put in the currency or whatever, like coin in any shape or form, whether it's a coin, whether it's a, where it's kind of like fiat or whatever, it's the trust that people put in it. And unfortunately, you know, the way that, things have been moving like politically and just like worldwide. It, it, it just shows like how much of these countries are over leveraged. Of course, like something new is going to come when there's so much of these technologies that allow the opportunity to do that, whether it's a uh, Bitcoin or Ethereum or the, the cool thing, like, I guess like I was not onboarded into Bitcoin because I did not understand the, um, I'm more like a marketing person myself and I'm more like a creator. So the, the, the actual, thesis of Bitcoin did not resonate with me so much back then. It does now, but back then it just didn't catch my attention. But when I saw with Ethereum and um, with what Gary Vee was talking about, I was like, oh my God, like artists will be making NFTs. Like you don't have to be a digital artist and like uh, work in an agency or like uh, work for, for like a certain salary. You can actually make, make, make your living out of that. Like I think that's wonderful. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting too. Like that's how you entered this ecosystem, right? I, I like I can't get over enough how it, it's really intriguing me the different path. I know I was talking about this earlier, but like the different paths people take and what excites different people. And like I would have never guessed four years ago NFTs would be the thing that would onboard this new group of people. And I think mm-hmm. in general, like there's just an evolution of crypto, of the whole crypto space, like whether it was ICOs or whether it was NFTs or whether it's decentralized finance, there's all these different areas, or whether it's Bitcoin, like just really ultrasound money that excite people and get them interested. And like every person needs a different, like I talked about Andreas Antonopoulos and Don Tapscott being my touches that it took to get me in. And it's been like very interesting for me to watch what kind of touch it takes to get people in and what kind of touch it takes to like pique someone's curiosity. Because for example, like I think we've all had a situation where our best friend or a family member has told us something and it falls on deaf ears, right? And then a stranger will tell you the exact same thing. And you're like, all of a sudden, very, very interested in it. <laughs> and I think it's <laughs> it says a lot about people. Like, I think everyone is prone to that bias. 
But I do think like some people require less touch points on a topic to go and be curious about it than others. And I guess different topics around crypto pull in different people. So it's just been like very fascinating for me to watch people get yeah. sucked in. Yeah. And I yeah. think, I think like the, the, the thing with like crypto is because like there was so much misinformation about it and the way that the media portrayed it, it kind of shaped the culture over the past, let's say four or five years of how people see Bitcoin or like Ethereum and everybody's like, Oh, it's so volatile. Like I'm, I'm like, yeah, it's volatile, but is it riskier? Because there's a difference between risk and vol- volatility. I think you touched on a couple of things that are really interesting to me. It's like the misinformation that came from the traditional media um, was interesting to me because like, I didn't realize how wrong the media was about things until I became, I don't know if you want to call it like an armchair expert on Bitcoin, but like I spent so many hours researching Bitcoin and Ethereum. Like I disappeared from my wife for like months while I was just listening to podcasts, <laughs> reading books. I literally, it was all I thought about. It completely consumed me. And I have that type of personality where like once an NFTs totally have gotten me there. So what I was getting at is like, I am not an expert. I know who the experts on Bitcoin are. They're like the Bitcoin core developers, but I understand enough about it and how it works. And I've spent enough time where I'm like above 99% of people in the world. And then there's like 1% that's way, way smarter than me. But I know enough about it to understand when I'm reading an article that the author knows what they're talking about and what they're not talking about. And when I read a New York Times article about crypto, Bitcoin, Ethereum, NFTs, I think anyone who is like really into this space knows it's all bullshit, right? It is almost Mm -hmm. all clickbait bullshit. That is basically like, how do we, we need something that, and I'm as someone who creates content now, I understand that you know, you, you have to pick your audience or you're trying to go for everyone. And like the New York Times is going for everyone. They're going for every eyeball. So what does that yeah. mean? They have to dumb it down to the lowest common denominator. And not only that, they need a headline that's going to beat out every other newspaper. So telling the truth about what these things are versus saying money laundering. Uh, it's it's, vo- it's to way too, it's way too nuanced to, t- to tell the truth. And it's way, you would need an entire book to explain the truth. You can't do it <laughs> in an essay. So, but what that did for me was it kind of disillusioned me to media in general. Like I'll listen to them explain any topic now. And I'm like, you're explaining immigration to me in three paragraphs. And this is probably one of the most <laughs> nuanced, complex, multivariable topics with uh, like unexplainable to the smartest people, like uh, un, un, like unguessable second and third order effects. And you're going to give me a three paragraph thing that explains everything. Like, please, it, it just doesn't exist. And I mean, I still read the news, but I just take it with a grain of salt now. Yeah, I think, like I think you would different. really, I'm sure you know him, but like you'd really enjoy Nassim Taleb. Oh yeah. I, I don't think I'm smart enough to understand what he, like I've tried to read multiple, like both of his books. And I think he's just too smart for me. Like, he I'm goes honest, so like, deep into like every subject, but it's, it's like, it's, it's yeah. kind of like mind boggling. <laughs> I need like a Nassim Taleb for dummies. I'm, I'm being totally honest. <laughs> and I, I hope people don't think it I'm is. No, no, it's true. Yeah. It is. It is a bit heavy. You're not going to read that. Like I certainly don't read that before going to bed because my mind yeah. is just not there. And <laughs> I kind of really need to zone in. I have both of his, of his books, I think skin of the game and maybe the black swan if they're called. Yeah. And I've tried to read them both like no less than 10 times. And I've never gotten more than like four pages before. I'm like, I'm going to go live my life. And uh, like one day I'll, one day maybe I'll be smart enough to understand this. But do you, do you actually read uh, like, how do you learn? Are you more like a podcast kind of person or like, do you, do you read or like, how do you assimilate information? Yeah. So I love, I love podcasts. I love blog, really good blogs. I think are really good because I think most books 
are blog posts that someone turned into a book to make money. Like I think most of books course, you can distill, yeah, 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 you yeah. can distill down to like 15 pages if you took out all the the fluff and the stories. That's, what, and that, that's also what yeah. Tim Ferriss says. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. I probably consciously like stole that from Tim Ferriss or Naval. Like I have no doubt they've said that. But I love good blogs. I love good podcasts. I do. There are some amazing books. I'm looking at my nightstand right now. Richer, Wiser, Happier by William Green is amazing. Oh, yeah. I'm like halfway through that. He just interviews a bunch of different investors. I have the big short. Just mm-hmm. because that's a, that's a really fun book. Sovereign Individual has been on my list a long time. And I haven't gotten to it. And then I have 1984 over there. I know you didn't. I didn't. I know you didn't ask for a list of books. I actually, I just keep a stack of books on my bookstand. I'm never actively reading them, but when people come look in my bedroom, they're like, "Oh, this guy, he knows what he's doing." This like, guy, he's well he's read. Really well read. <laughs> <laughs> to, to me, like it's funny because I, I'm way more into the. Um, I'm way more like a person that reads. Like I'll switch between books. I will never read a book fully. I never commit that much. Like I'll read like a little section of a book and then I get kind of bored of it. And so I'll, I'll start reading another book and then the, those kind of get um, my ideas flowing and then give me more inspiration per se than just like focusing on one thing at the time. Yeah, there there's very few books I will get through in their entirety. I recently had like a good string of books and if anyone listening is listening to books, there's a one called, or, or looking for a good read. There's a book called The Girl with Seven Names, which is about a North Korean, uh, like someone who escaped North Korea. And oh, that wow. book like couldn't, couldn't put down, it was one of those books like read it in two days, like was avoiding friends, family and sleep to, to read it. The other one I read, which is like kind of relevant today, given what's going on in Russia is Red Notice by Bill Browder. And that was one uh, th- where doesn't that have like a, a Netflix series on it or like a movie or something like that? I wouldn't be surprised if it, it it's written. I think, for I this, think like, so. Yeah, it feels like it should be on the screen. I don't know if there's a series on it, but that one, the first half was like pretty good. In the second half, I stayed up to like 6 a.m. and wow. ruined my sleep, ruined my sleep for a week by uh, by reading it. But uh, loved those two. Um, I'm gonna, I, I noted them down. So you speak, you, I think I read this morning that you speak Vietnamese and you're learning Thai. Is that true? Yeah. So I'm, I'm half Vietnamese and oh, I'm half nice. German. So I, I, on the German side, like it's very limited what I speak, but uh, mm-hmm. it's because, uh, my mom from the German side actually learned Vietnamese. So I was brought up in Vietnamese. Wow. Okay, cool. So my wife, uh, is Swiss and her dad speaks. Oh. German and Spanish. That's awesome. And yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, he doesn't speak English, and I don't speak German, and I, I don't <laughs> or Spanish. <laughs> and I, I actually, I've learned a lot. I've spent like at least at least eighteen months in Latin American countries over the past six years. So I've taken a lot of lessons, and I've had a ton of exposure. You seem like you travel a lot, and and I'm not saying this because you told me during the podcast, but just like you, the way that you are, your energy. Like you're beaming with like positive energy. I would see someone like that's well, like that oh, travels that, a lot. That's, <laughs> that's very kind. I think it's because it's sunny today. I'm, I'm one of those people whose like mood is really impacted by the weather and I'm looking out and it's just like a gorgeous day. But when it's cloudy, I'm definitely a gloomy person. But I, I am really lucky. We, uh, we've traveled a ton and um, we were sort of doing the remote work thing long before COVID. We spent a few years probably, you know, we were joking because we now have a lease and a son. But before this, our longest lease had been six months. And other than that, 
we basically had like month to month or we'd be in hostels or be traveling. And like, we spent many years probably in like 30 plus countries and all over. We lived in Alaska for a while in the mountains of Denver for a while, all over. And, um, did you encounter some bears in the, in Alaska? Dude, uh, we no less than like a dozen (laughs) run-ins with bears and one like really, Oh my God. Really entertaining story that I think the listeners will enjoy, uh, was (laughs) in Denali after we did some backcountry hiking we were on the side of the road waiting for the bus to pick us up. And if you don't know, Denali's about, I think it's like twice the size of Connecticut. It's a huge national park. And there's just one road that cuts through it and buses come back and forth. And uh, during COVID, there was like obviously a limited schedule. And we were waiting for the bus to come pick us up. There's no cars on the street. It's just the Denali road. And the bus has tourists and campers is basically the blend of people uh, that want to see the park. And But there's no like trails in Denali. You just get, they give you like 100 square miles to yourself. And that's your area. And your goal is to leave no footprints, leave like nothing. No, no. If you make a fire, you have to destroy that there was ever a fire there. You're not allowed to post coordinates online because they don't want, yeah, they don't want people to find the same spots you were in and they don't want trails to form as people go there. They just want it to be like a rugged wilderness experience and a um, blank space. Exactly. And it is, it's really, it's incredible. So we were in this area called the polychrome glaciers and we were on the road at the end and we were eating food out of our bear canister. Cause they give you a bear canister to like keep your food in. And, uh, my, my wife's eyes just like glazed over as she was looking over my shoulder and I looked like 20 feet to our right. And by the way, this is one of like 15 bear encounters we had, but this was by far the closest. And there was just this like monster grizzly bear walking right towards us oh my God. for the food. And I hopped up and pulled up the bear skin and screamed at it. And it disappeared into the brush in front of us. There was like all this like waist high brush that we couldn't really see along the road. And it disappeared into that. And we spread out and put the food away. And we both had bear spray and I'm looking for it. And I see it, it sees me and it pops up on it. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen this bear, like stand up on its oh, legs. Yes. And it's it's it, insane. It is yeah, so, it like, it's so tall. It's like 10 feet tall, right? They're huge. Yeah. And it like stood up and it was probably like 50, hundred feet away from me. And it just like looked at me and then popped back down. And I was like, oh, this sucks. And then the bus finally pulls up, right? And the bus driver is like, why are you guys spread out? And I explain, there's a bear. And he goes, well, and the bus is, mind you, half full. And he goes, well, the problem is, he's like, given the COVID regulations, I'm only allowed to have a 50% full bus, <laughs> which means I can only I can only take one of you. And my wife goes, and we're like three hours from the car right now. And she's like, you go. And I was like, there's no way I'm letting my, my wife's like four foot 10. I was like, there's no way I'm leaving you here with the bear, especially in front of like where I'm being judged by all these tourists. So she gets on the bus, the bus drives like a hundred yards down the road and screeches to a stop. And like everybody's hand points out the bus and they're like, the bear is right there. And I'm on the ground. I'm obviously like at a lower vantage point. And I'm like, yeah, I, I can't see it. Cause I'm not up there. And they, uh, the bus pulls back and the bus driver's like, yeah, we're a lot, cl- you're a lot closer to that bear than I thought. Like you should probably get on. I was like, Thank you. And uh, he, thank, yeah. thank you. Thank you for your kindness. Yeah. And he let me on. <laughs> but uh, we had a lot of bear encounters and it was Alaska. Alaska is like one of the top most beautiful places I've been in the world. Like it's just it's an incredible place. I, I recommend everyone go if you ever have the opportunity. It's it's amazing. I want to go if if we can kind of like uh, follow this train of thought. Like what's your favorite place? Of all the places you've visited in Asia, in Europe, in, uh, you know, in America, like where is your favorite place? Oh yeah. That's a very so, hard question. <laughs> no, I, I know, I know the answer though. I know my top oh, three. Really? Um, yeah. I love the, the Philippines, uh, oh, has wow. the nicest people in the world, like literally the nicest people in the entire world. And at the Moonbird, I had a Moonbird meetup last week in San Diego 
and I was chatting with this guy and he was so lovely. And I was like, oh, where are you from, buddy? And he's like, Philippines. <laughs> and I was like, of course, I knew you're Filipino. But have you, but you said you've been to Thailand too, right? Like Thai, in Thailand, like people are super nice as well. Th- th- I, I'm not discrediting Thailand. Thailand is probably my top five. I just haven't. Uh, if I have to whittle it down to three, Thailand. And, but and food, food wise, food wise, like do you prefer Thailand Th- or Philippines? Thailand. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. Thailand. Well, Italy first. I'm 100% Italian. Italy and Mexico are just, there's, although Thai food. So my other problem is I'm allergic to nuts. So, oh yeah, everything pad, is, pad Thai with like nuts and oh yeah, it's, yeah. that's a problem. Papaya it's, salad. Got, <laughs> yeah, I got, I gotta be really careful, but and, and so the other two I have are interesting because I don't think they'd be like, if you've only been out of the country once or twice, I don't think they'd be most people's first choices. Maybe, I don't know. I think because I've traveled so much, I look for things that are a little more like otherworldly. And the two that come to mind are Cuba was, mm-hmm. uh, it's, an, it's like going back in time and just the way things are run there. And it's one of the few places I went where I had to write like constantly because there were so many interesting things happening. I didn't want to forget yeah. any of them. Cuba and Japan was like, oh uh, yeah, to- Tokyo is like another planet. The like the subways having like the bird noises and the noises that like the ATM machines or any machine, like the coin machines will, that you get a subway ticket. Well, like it, everything's like an arcade game. Um, but I actually own a Japanese restaurant and even the chef itself uh, himself, he told me that. Wait, I- you own a Japanese restaurant? Yeah. <laughs> uh, can we talk about that? <laughs> <laughs> I was always in the marketing scene, um, doing marketing for restaurants, hospitality businesses. So restaurants, hotels, bars, and clubs started in Montreal. And then eventually like Montreal is a very small city and even more so the hospitality scene. So I got to know a lot of the people, business owners that, that would start new projects and all that. And a lot of them were our clients. And when uh, the opportunity came uh, from one of my biggest clients that we actually handled like I think three three accounts we handled of their like businesses and, and hotels or bars and clubs. They they said like uh, that person David David Schmidt is actually a very well known restaurateur in um, Montreal Quebec, and he said like uh, we actually have this fucking cool spot in Montreal uh, Montreal Chinatown, and uh, we want to do a Japanese restaurant there. And I was like, okay, cool, I'm in, and and he got uh, one of the top. Japanese chefs in Montreal that worked in the Tsukiji market, the busiest market in Japan, like you know, fish market and all that. And uh, we we did a kind of like Japanese snack bar there. That's amazing. how it happened. That's <laughs> oh, it's so, it's so cool. What a, what an amazing experience. I wanted I wanted to ask you too though. So that's awesome. And then what are your favorite? I, I feel the same way about you travel wise. Do you, have you traveled a lot? And do you have favorite countries? Yeah, I, I mean I've. I've been fortunate to travel a lot. My favorite country so far, I would have to say like it is, I haven't visited Korea yet, but I would have to say it's Thailand. I've kind of fallen in love with the culture there. Like it's really beautiful and people are nice. The food is amazing. Like, yeah. So I, yeah. I would have to say Thailand. Yeah. My, my wife and I have both talked about wanting to live in Bangkok for a while, which my, Bangkok is wild. Ba- Bangkok is wild. I love, I love the islands. I love the North. It's, it's a cool country cause it has a lot, a lot of different, um, yeah. Like some like flavors. Fifi islands or like, uh, if, if you go Chiang Mai or Chiang Rai or Ch- yeah, yeah, Chiang Mai, Chiang Mai. Yeah. yeah. Ch- Chiang Mai. Chiang Mai is awesome. Yeah. Chiang Mai is yeah. awesome, but to me, it's a bit slow on the pace. When you're used to Bangkok, you, you find that there's not much to do in Chiang Mai. That's fair. And I love Bangkok too, because, and I guess a lot of Asia, because my wife and I are really big pool players and there's 
phenomenal really? cool playing. Yeah, there's a really, especially the Philippines have some of the best players in the world. And Tyler, Bangkok has some of the best billiard halls I've been to in the world. I'll remember like, that. Next time we don't do a bet at a bar, like, hey, I'll beat you at a, at well, a pool game. I'm so it, horrible. It was so funny. So at the Moonbird meetup, uh, I had it at a place with pool tables and the ETH San Diego guys who are amazing. Uh, they were both talking about how they love to play pool and they love to bet ETH on pool. And I was like, oh I, oh, I would be more than happy to bet ETH. And I was like, what do you guys bet? And they're like, oh, like 0.05 to 0.1. And I was like, I will take like all day. And I had my own cue and they were both like, I think we'll like maybe play one first just for fun. And then like, <laughs> I I don't like, I would never like hustle someone or like take advantage of them. And I, um, I was playing well that day and maybe getting a little lucky and whatnot. And they were, they were just like, yeah, I don't think we're going to bet. And I was like, okay. But, um. Look, I have I wrote down six rapid fire questions for you and I want to yes. I want to run through them before I don't know if you answered these, but I'd love to know your opinion on them and maybe we can kind of go for back sure. and forth, but I'd love to run through these before we before we wrap up if we can. Yeah, sounds good. So, what are you most excited about in the NFT space right now? I guess like I'm I'm really excited about the fact that like artists can find a place where they can make a living out of it. I still find like that, that really boggles my mind that like somebody can come in and like really build something substantial and have some community support them. Like you're a holder of the art and you can actually interact with the artist. I think it's just like, it's a different kind of um, intimacy that you have with the artist versus the Instagram age or the Facebook age or like all that, the web two age. Like I, I find like it was so surface layer, like, oh yeah, the artists post their, their photos and like you follow them, but you just follow them. Like you actually didn't put any kind of investment in them. And now you can actually own something that's digital and the artist can choose to send you something afterwards, like um, whether it's the physical piece or like uh, some sort of merch that comes with it. Like, I, I just think it opens up so many opportunities. So to me, that's really what I'm excited about. And if I can add on top of that, I'm also really excited about the IRLs that come from the space. The amount of people that you get to meet from this, like I'm so grateful I actually got to meet you, Nucci. That's what I'm most bullish about. Like, because a lot of people say like, we're all going to make it. And to me, like we have to define what it is. It, what does it mean? Like to me, it means that you get to make really amazing connections and then you get to build with them. Yeah, I agree. I like completely agree. The connections I've made in this space have been life-changing. The friendships I've made and the people I've gotten to speak to and like speaking to you and like hearing your story about the the restaurant and the your travels and, and like your, your company and everything. It's been like, these are the types of things that mean the most to me. And then to what you're saying about the artist being able to make a living, like, I think this shift, if I could define two specific things out of that, that I think are amazing is one creators owning the connections to their audience. So if you have YouTube, if you have Twitter, if you have Instagram, they own your connections to that audience. If they, if they uh, delete your account, you've lost all of your followers and you don't have their emails. You have no way to get in touch with that million people or your audience you built in the NFT space. You have that connection forever. You can see Everyone who's ever owned your asset, how long they've owned it for, you can drop them assets. And it's it's not just an email, it's a wallet. You can literally send them new digital assets. And you could do things like Xcopy, where he made you burn old art to create new art. So you had to burn multiple afterburner arts to create a new piece of art. Like 
the mechanism that like the the new tools that are being given to creators and uh, to artists and to to the world are just they're mind blowing and I think I'm just excited to see where like it's really the the limitations is human creativity for this and I'm just excited to see where we take this because the evolution like if you told me four years ago that board apes were going to be a PFP project that would be worth you know three hundred thousand dollars per photo. I would have said mm-hmm. you're you're high, right? Like there's no way anyone will pay three hundred thousand dollars for a JPEG. But sure enough, they have done that and much, much, much more. And the, like I, I just think the innovation that comes out, and I think in five years, the innovation we're going to see is going to like blow our hair back. We're gonna we're gonna like really laugh on these early days, and and it'll be they'll be of like fun early days, but they'll they'll just be like silly in their simplicity. Um, so yeah, the, I think the evolution is so interesting and I think you nailed on so many good points there. Can I ask you one rapid fire question? Sure. What is one NFT project that you're really excited about right now? Right now, one NFT project that I'm really excited about. Am I allowed to say proof in Moonbirds or is that too? <laughs> <laughs> A thousand percent, I mean. <laughs> too on the nose. Um, I could look through my wallet and find something that might be interesting to me. I think it just like consumed a lot of our time. Like proof in Moonbirds yeah. or like it is just such please continue. Like go, go yeah, for it. Yeah, I think I'll talk about those. So like if, if we were on the street and I like I try actually try to avoid talking about proof in Moonbirds on my podcast as much as I can because I don't want to put non people not in those communities to sleep. But I do think what they're building is going to be pretty epic. I think Do you think they're gonna build the the next Discord? Because that's the rumors I've been kind of like hearing. Or- so I had like, I don't know whether I was asleep or not asleep the other night. It's kind of tough with like an 11 week old to know what state of mind you're in. But I know I had this dream about like them, what high rise could be. And it was a place where you logged in and you were able to basically like seamlessly navigate both conversation, like basically Discord, Twitter and OpenSea rolled into one. So it was a way to like seamlessly now you logged in with your wallet. It automatically brought you into all of the places you were allowed to communicate. If you were talking to someone, you could click on them and it would bring all of their wallets up. You could click on an X copy and it would. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. And it would show you like, so you could immediately say in discord, like, I don't know if the person I'm talking to owns an X copy or if they own a, if they're a punk or what, you know, like we, we have to like start talking. So like, that's a barrier. So I was just thinking through like all of the barriers that exist and how we can remove those barriers and how they can allow an easier conversation, easier community building and an easier transfer of assets. And I'm like, well, all of those things need to be rolled into one. So I don't know what Kevin's building, but he's brilliant. Alexis Ohanian's a brilliant, brilliant guy. Like the fact that he he's invested is exciting to me. Um, I think there's still, I like probably maybe a little bit of an outlier opinion here, but like I still, I think there's still a pretty high probability of failure in the project, probably higher than success, just because I think with any of these things, no matter who the founder is, things fail. A lot of things fail. A lot like I posted a tweet recently where I listed every project Google had created that failed. But and there's like there's literally hundreds of them, but I list like 40 of them. And that's Google, one of the most like well-funded, like, you know, well, like smartest engineers on earth with all of the information at their fingertips mm-hmm. failed. So like, I think there's a great probability of success and that's why I'm along for the ride. And I believe in Kevin and I've watched the way he works. And I think being in proof has given you and I and everyone a really closer access to him than most. I don't know what they're building, but I hope they're breaking down some of those barriers and trying to build a platform where they can use 
proof, use Moonbirds to seed that platform and build a network from there. But um, I don't know what it is. I'm excited for the ride. I didn't, I didn't, I hope I didn't fund it too much, but that's, I think like, so also like, let's just like take a step back. And I think about like Gary V's fly fish club. And I, I actually like messaged a, I have a friend who's been nominated for James Beard award, which is like the Academy Awards of cooking. Right. So he's just a chef. He's got a, he's got a bunch of, um, you, you know this, right? Obviously. So Mm -hmm. he's, but he's got a bunch of successful restaurants in the Denver area. And I messaged him. I said, what is the success rate of celebrity chef restaurants? And he said about 50%. And I said, what is the success rate of normal restaurants? He said about 10%. Just to add on what you were saying, like restaurant business is it's crazy hard. Like people yeah. do not understand like how, how thin the margins are. And uh, even when you find great people, it's keeping those people. Cause like you could have a great, uh, a great cook or maybe a sous chef one day. And then the next day they leave you. Yeah. So yeah, please continue. No. Yeah. I, then you try to find a new one as fast as you can. So my, my dad owned three restaurants growing up. So Italian oh, amazing. Places. So where, where? I, I, in, uh, I grew up in Connecticut. Um, okay. So they were all in there, but I, I was probably a bit young to understand the challenges of restaurant business. But I guess my example was like five fly fish club. People spent, I don't know. It was like three to five ETH. Plus there's a gas war at like five to $10,000. But I, I'm curious if like people are realistically evaluating what the odds like one, I don't think you're an owner. It's a membership. Right. So and I think most people are buying these things. parts of the profits. Right. For sure not. With, and you're betting on something that in normal, even with celebrity chefs, has a 50 percent failure rate on normal restaurants. Uh, it's a 90 percent failure rate. Like even I know they say Gary Vee and celebrity chefs. Yeah, and, like, exactly. I, I was like, I was like. Yeah, and, is it like there's a celebrity chef and there's Gary V on top of I, it? I, yeah, so like I look, I'm rooting for everyone to win in this space, and I want th- that project to win. But I just think people should. Like, has Gary V ever opened a restaurant? No, and has he ever opened a ten thousand square foot restaurant? Like another, a good example of this is David Copperfield. I, I'm a magician, so I know I know <laughs> this story. David Copperfield, right? He was the highest paid performer in the entire world higher than any other performer in the world. Like, at, like, I think he was making 50 million a year in his height. He has more Emmys. I think he's the second most Emmys to Walt Disney. Like, I don't think people realize just how big Copperfield was. Oh, yeah. He tried to open a giant restaurant in New York City that was magic themed, and it failed miserably. And I'm like, this is one of the most well-capitalized, uh, most popular entertainers in the world, probably with one of the best creative teams on earth. And he failed at opening a restaurant in New York City. And I'm sure he brought in the best restaurateurs, the best chefs, like the best of ed, the best, the best across the board. But the thing is that if you're not really involved with the restaurant, it's really hard to make it happen. Like at the end of the day, hospitality business is all about like, they want to come there to see you. They want to come there because they see you involved in the industry. They want to come meet you. They want to come have a drink with you. And if you're just like a part owner and you're like kind of like a silent partner and like, uh, oh, I just invested the money in it and I'm never there. And like, I'll let it run like it will run. It's kind of like bound to fail. <laughs> it, it's, it's a bit it's a bit like an NFT project in the sense that like when my dad had a restaurant, people came to see him because yeah, he's exactly. He's an entertainer. Um, he was on Broadway. He's also a magician. Like he is definitely a personality. And it reminds me a bit of, a, it's like a community of people that want to come and hang out. And he had all the regulars at the bar and, and, and in an NFT project, you build a community. And if you as a founder aren't present to nurture that community and be available to them, then you definitely lose. There's something, something lost there for sure. And like, there's an opportunity there if you are there. So I think there's yeah. definitely parallels. 
All right. I'm going to go to the next rapid fire. This is a simple one. And it's one of my favorites. Who's your favorite? And uh, who's your favorite Twitter follow? Naval Ravikant. Oh, nice. That's bulletproof. I mean, every thought that he puts out is it's like it's just gems. I love his philosophy of saying before we get you to do anything else, let's get you rich first. I love that. Yeah. He, he's like no bullshit approach to like his philosophy. He's like, I'm not like oblivious to the fact that like people have financial needs. Let's get you yeah. rich first and then let's figure everything out after. Yeah. And he's given a lot out on how to get wealthy and how to build wealth. But I, I think the thing that I love the most about Naval is that he puts out these thoughts, like you said, and there, like a lot of people put out smart thoughts, but his thoughts are the types of thoughts that make me think about the world differently forever. Like he'll yeah. say something and I will think about it, not just today and in the next hour and the next, in the next week, like a year or two later, I'll have a decision to make and something he said will come into my mind and it drives my decision-making and the, my perception of the world, which is a really rare for a thinker. And if anyone's listening, like looking for a good deep dive on Naval, the two recommendations I would give them were the Farnham street podcast, which is a, just a fantastic podcast in general. His episode on, on there was, is probably one of my favorites. And I've listened to no less than a dozen Naval podcasts. And then there is a book called the, I think it's called the Almanac of Naval Ravikant. Oh, and yeah. Yeah. Somebody went through all of his tweets, all of his podcasts, all of his writing and just condensed it down into, you know, an amazing read. So two great places to get started if you're looking to, to did, dive did into you, Did thinking. you ever look at uh, Charlie Munger's uh, Almanac? Poor, I think it's called like Poor Charlie's. Poor Charlie's uh, Almanac. Munger's a genius, even though he hates yeah. on crypto. I, I don't hold it against him. I think it might be like a little past his time to like, <laughs> you know, like there, there's only like so long you have to like reshape <laughs> exactly. the way you, to like completely rethink the way you think about the world. And at 90, whatever he's at, I think he's probably decided on how he views the world. And I don't hold that against him. Like, I know like you lose plasticity in your brain as you grow up and and I, 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 I get it. He's one of the greatest investors ever. But no, I, I haven't read it. I think it's out of print and they, they were like kind of expensive and I was like putting off buying it, but I've always wanted to. And he has so many quotes. And so he just... The, the thing I love about his book that he, he really talks about human biases. We, we, we will look at things in a way that is biased. So I want to minimize that. And actually his book is, uh, is quite insightful on that. Yeah, and, and Shane Parrish, the guy who does Farnham Street, is really has like a whole encyclopedia of, I think, mental models to help you like think through the world. And then also, I think he studies cognitive biases too, which are of like, I think just thinking about the way you think. And like, if you think about your brain as like a processing system and like, or like a computer, if you can make your computer run better, then you're going to think about the world more clearly and make better decisions. And like understanding cognitive biases that affect us all um, mm -hmm. is a, it's just like how you, make your computer better. So, and I, I want to, I, I was like, I've just got a new Twitter follow like two weeks ago that I am obsessed with and I want to, and it's NFT related. So I want to share it. Um, yes, go for it. NFT statistics.eth. Uh, really? Okay. Yeah. And the handle is punk nine zero five nine is the handle at punk nine Oh five nine is amazing. And they post, just really interesting data around the NFT markets and analysis. And it's just 
it, it's never like a, a sloppy, wishy-washy tweet. It's always like a really heavy hitting piece of data around what's going on in the NFT market. And it's like daily, no less than like a half dozen tweets around the NFT market, how money's moving around, what projects are succeeding, where money's consolidating. Like it's just an absolutely phenomenal, phenomenal uh and and also like open sources some spreadsheets around floor and, and different things they're building. So like can't recommend it enough. What are your thoughts on the fact that like communities, people in communities really look at the floor price of a project? Should founders really be concerned with that? And if not, what should they focus on? So floor play price to me is a reflection of the community, right? If proof sucked, the floor wouldn't be 100 ETH. It'd be one ETH or it'd be zero. Nobody would be in there. Nobody would care. So to me, I foster a good community in proof. And when I see someone acting like a scumbag or someone shilling something, or you know, if I see any like bad behavior, I'm not a moderator, but I will call something out. Happy cow will call something out. Like there's people in proof. Like I think as a community, we feel, even you, like there's a responsibility to foster that community, right? And having a price tag tied to that community certainly incentivizes me to want to keep an eye on things and make sure because like not only is it the price though it's like I love that community and I love that space and I learn so much from people and I want to make sure it stays a nice place it's kind of like if you have a public park and you see someone littering in it like you'll go pick it up or you'll tell the person not to do that anymore it's it's our community it's our neighborhood and I feel responsibility and you know if your community in your neighborhood becomes a more desirable place guess what your asset your house value goes up and that's not a bad thing either so okay People focusing on price, I think you can definitely focus. I don't even really look at the proof floor anymore. I mean, I know it's a lot, but I don't really care because I don't. I'm not interested in selling it. I mean, like you said, yeah. everyone has a price. Sure, if it goes to a high enough price, I'll probably want to go and and you know figure the next ten years of my life out. But <laughs> um, look, I think fixating solely on price can be really unhealthy, and it can lead like. I know it can lead to depression and like it, things going up yeah. and going down and being the only thing you worry about and checking your portfolio every day. They're normal things to do. And if you're actively trading, that's your life. Uh, and if you're an active trader and like traders and flippers make up a big part of this community and they're not, they're not bad in any way. They provide liquidity. They help the markets be more efficient. Like I think they have a place in this market and they're an important part of it. I think they can fuck up the market too with gas wars and all sorts of stuff. But like that actually drives innovation. It drives progress. And it's like kind of natural capitalism yeah. happening in real time. So like I, I find it hard to find any argument against flippers. I'm sure if I sat down and thought long enough on it, I could. But um, those people need to focus on floor. So I think, you know, these are your investments. They're your money. They're your life's, you know, energy put into, you know, the blockchain. You should keep an eye on what they're worth but you shouldn't fix it on it. And I think founders should keep an eye on floor. But I mean, there's a difference between talking about floor every day and a difference between keeping an eye on it and making like, you know, as a founder, if you're a founder of a project and your floor is at zero, you're probably doing something wrong. And there's, you know, there's no signal more important to a founder than what the price is. But on the other hand, like, is it something you should be Obsessing uh, over, ob like, obsessing yeah. on and driving short term incentives on. And this is like a Naval quote is long term. Uh, I think he says long term strategies long -term with long term games with long term people. I think. Yeah. It's something like that. But like you should be, if you're playing the long game, the price will take care of itself. If you're playing the short game, you're playing games to try to get your floor up on an hourly or daily basis, you're, you're, you're going to eat shit. Right. So I, I think if you're playing the long game, it's going to take care of itself. Keeping an eye on it is a great barometer. But watching it on a minute-to-minute -minute basis is a fool's errand. 
Amen. I want to say uh, thank you for taking the time. You are always like an amazing voice to listen to in the NFT space. And whether it's through NFT um, Twitter spaces or your own podcast, The Nucci Show, the way that you articulate things, like it's very understandable. So thank you for taking the time. Martin, thank you. And thank you for your patience with getting this scheduled. And I think you're <laughs> just like an amazing like ambassador of this space and the work you're doing with the podcast and everything is like helping push knowledge and adoption of the space, which I personally couldn't be more appreciative of. So thank you for the kind words and thank you for everything you're doing. I really appreciate it. That's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please consider leaving a review for me. Um, it's always super helpful to get that kind of feedback uh, of what I'm doing right, what I could improve. And uh, so if you can take 13 to 35 seconds of your time to share some thoughts with me, I really appreciate it. Thank you again for listening. And uh, until next time. <laughs>